Good morning, saints. How are you this morning? You're looking good. Won't you nudge your neighbor and say, good morning, saint. It's always fun to call somebody saint. Well, it's good to be here with you. Uh, last week, our good friend here, Jeremy Baker, he preached a wonderful message, and uh, he called it Law and Love. And I, I thought I would just sort of carry on that theme in a, in a series of messages. And uh, I want to speak to you today in that same vein to some degree. I want to speak to you about Peter's restoration after Jesus was raised from the dead. And of course, we know that Peter denied Jesus three times. But Jesus worked with him in a very specific way. And I want us to go through that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 13, uh, verse 36 through 38 is where we will begin. And the title of my message this morning is going to be, Failure is Not Final. Failure is not final. Amen. So John 13, verse 36, it says, Simon Peter said to him, and this was, of course, at the dinner table as Jesus was getting ready to be betrayed. And Jesus is addressing them. And Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay your life down for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's, let's pray just for a moment. Father, we thank you and I thank you, God, for each person that's here this morning, each person that's listening, God, and, and I'm just asking you that, Holy Spirit, you would come and, Lord, you would anoint your word, you'd bring life to it, God, that it would speak directly to our hearts, especially those hearts, God, that need it the most. And so, Lord, I just believe you this morning to do a transforming work in each person's heart, in each listener, God, and we will give you the glory and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm dealing with a very depressing subject, and as I was reading, I've been reading this story here for a while, actually, and, and I wanted to go with a different sermon series, but the Lord held me up on that, and that's all, okay, I'll, I'll go with where the Lord goes. So, so he really impressed this upon me, and I thought, Lord, this may just be for one individual, and, and, I, and I felt like the Lord said, yeah, this may just be for one individual. So maybe it's just for one, but I guarantee you, you'll glean something out of it. But as I was studying this message and thinking about Peter's failure and trying to put myself in his shoes, I went went back to 1994. I was a young little lad, and my mama took me to see The Lion King. Anybody ever seen that movie, right? 1994, it was a good year, and I was about seven years old, and I went in to watch The Lion King. And I remember, I still have a vivid memory of being in the theater watching this movie, and Mufasa, right, getting killed. The daddy, the king lion, getting murdered right out of the gate pretty much, getting stampeded right out of the gate. My little seven-year-old heart couldn't take it. I start to tear up right in the middle of the movie. I was like, why would you do this to kids, y'all? I mean, Disney, y'all are evil. You know, I mean, to do that to kids, and Mufasa's just dying right there, right out of the gate. But you, you notice what happens is, is it's not so much Mufasa dying out of the gate that really gets you, but you see Simba, his son's response. Because there's a whole lot of other things at play as far as Mufasa dying that day. There was a whole lot of stuff going on. I get it. But you got to understand that in the movie, Simba, his youngest boy, he played a role in Mufasa dying, didn't he? His active, willful rebellion against his father led to this, this series of events that ultimately caused his dad to be stampeded and killed and murdered. And you remember when the weight of that lands on him, what he's done as a young child, what he's done. What does he do? What's his response? He immediately runs and goes away from that which he was called to do. 
And here's the thing. This, this is why I feel like it's important because in the church today, I see this happening over and over and over again. I see people that they fail, they make a bad mistake, a tragedy happens in their life. And you know, here's the thing, here's the thing about Simba. is Simba goes out and he, he doesn't become the worst d- dude in the world. He doesn't join the cartel. He doesn't murder anybody. He's not shooting heroin up in the alley. He's still a pretty good dude. It's just that he's not where God would have him to be. See, he was born a king. He was supposed to be engaged in a very particular way in the kingdom, but he was not engaged in, a very, in that particular way in the kingdom because he had ran away from his tragedy. He had ran away from his hurt. He had ran away from his calling. And this same thing happens. Now, don't get me wrong. Like He, he met some cool friends. They sung Hakuna Matata. He taught them how to eat bugs. Like, like Everything was going on good. He still did well. It's not that he became the worst human being ever. It's just he was outside of where God would have him to be. And there's so many Christian people, they go through tragedy, they go through heartache, maybe they fail a little bit, maybe they sin a little bit, maybe they backslide, maybe something difficult happens in their life, and what they end up doing is they immediately run away and they say, you know what, I failed, I don't deserve to be in that position that I originally was supposed to be in, and they find themselves out there. Now, I don't know about you, but Peter's making some pretty bold claims. He's like, Lord, I lay down my life for you. But if you all will really look down deep inside your heart, you've all done the same, right? We've all made some pretty brash comments about what we're going to do for the Lord. I remember, you know, I, I never really got saved until I was 20, like genuine, genuine salvation, okay? But when I was a kid, I went to like three different lock-ins, and I got saved at all three of them. Anybody have me? And what, well, who wouldn't get saved? Because you go to a youth lock-in, son, and, you're, and they, they got you on this, on this terrible malnutritious food, right? On like these old, these old terrible cookies and, and, and knock off Kool-Aid and you're all jacked up on sugar. Then they got you in the gym playing ball to like 2 a.m. And then they call you back in to the sanctuary and somebody preaches a message on hell and you just begin to bawl. I mean, because you're, 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 I mean, you're in an unstable place to begin with based on your diet that you had that evening. And then all your buddies are there, and Wes, your friend, goes up to the altar, and he starts weeping. And then so you're like, well, if he's doing it, i got to do it too. And you're all emotional. It's in the middle of the night, and you end up giving your life back to Jesus. And everybody gets up, and they're like, man, I'm never cussing again. <laughs> and, they, and they start to cry. And you make all these decisions. You say, I'll never sin again. And we're just all like, yeah, we ain't never going to sin again, bro. We're going to hang in. We ain't going to cuss no more. And I remember doing this. Anybody else remember doing this? Yes, you've done it. And we make these big, bold statements. We're never going to cuss again. Of course, the very next Monday at school, son, we're cussing. You know, oh, man, we cuss. Well, who can do it? I mean, seriously. I mean, we were just emotional in that moment when we were giving our lives to Jesus. I mean, you can't really hold this stuff out. But see, and, and I'm joking about it from a youth perspective, but do you know we as adults do the same exact thing? And we make these big, bold claims in our hearts to the Lord. We say, we're going to do this. And as soon as we fail, we say, you know what? This Jesus stuff doesn't really work that much. If it worked, I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing. I wouldn't be struggling the way that I'm struggling. And so we deal with these things. And here's the question. My my, my main question for you in this message is, what does God think of you when you're an absolute failure? What does God think of you when you're an absolute failure? Now, Peter, if you remember Peter, like he was, he was, he was wide open, son. I mean, he, he, had a, he was like all, he got paid from the neck down. He didn't have a whole lot of sense. You know, he didn't think things through a whole lot, but he was ready to run through a brick wall at any given time. And that's really good if you're a soldier. It's really good if you're like a fullback. But a lot of times it backfired on him. It worked out good for him a couple of times, but a lot of times it backfired. But do you remember when Jesus was bold enough to say, hey, boys, who do you all think that I am? Peter was the only one bold enough to say, I think you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You remember when they were out in the boat 
and Jesus comes walking on the water. Everybody else is freaked out and says, man, there's a ghost out there on the water. Peter is the only one that is bold enough to say, Lord, let me walk on that water too. So, I mean, it's pretty cool from time to time when you've got a guy that, that's, that, that is that bold. You remember when Jesus is being arrested. Think about this guy. Jesus is being arrested. Peter's in the garden with the rest of the disciples while Jesus is arrested. And Peter is so gung-ho, he pulls out his fishing knife and he goes to end a guy's life and he only catches him in the ear. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's not even that organized. Like, if you, most people, if they're going to try to stab somebody, they'll probably hit them where they're aiming. But this dude, I don't, we think he was aiming at his ear? I don't know. I feel like Peter's just discombobulated. He just goes all for it all the time. And it works out good for him sometimes, but sometimes it does not. And that night, whenever, after he cut the dude's ear off, you know what Jesus did? He put the guy's ear back on and healed him. And then they go back into the courtyard where Jesus is being tried. And in this moment, probably a couple of hours right after Peter has made his bold claim and said, Lord, I'll I'll lay down my life for your sake. He starts seeing all of society begin to mock Jesus and begin to reject Jesus. And he's sitting around a charcoal fire, the Bible says. And as he's doing this, a servant girl comes up and says, hey, hey. Aren't you, aren't you with Jesus? I've seen you with Jesus before. And here's what it says in Matthew 26. A little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. And then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Notice what it says. So he went out and he wept Bitterly. Now they lived in a high shame, high honor culture. What that meant was that most likely, now scholars will say when he started cursing, right, like, like he went into cussing, he was getting bold about it, like he'd already backslid at that point, like me as a little 10 year old, you know what I'm saying? And he gets into talking bad, but he begins to call down curses. Now, scholars say he would have been calling down curses in one of two ways. And because it was a high shame, honor culture, it's not just that he was calling down a curse upon himself saying, let me be cursed if I know him, but he was legitimately probably calling down a curse on Jesus because calling down a curse on Jesus would have been the only true way for them to accept that he was not with him. Because if he knew him and he loved him, there's no way he would have brought a curse down on Jesus. But he was calling a curse down on Jesus. And in Luke's account, when he does it the third time, the scripture says Jesus is being dragged in chains and it says that he looks at him. Can you imagine after that third time he hears the rooster crow and then he looks up and Jesus is standing over there beaten and marred and he's looking at Peter. You imagine what's going through his heart at that moment. I tried to live this out this weekend. I'm thinking, my Lord, the shame, the pain that you would have felt. That's coming over you. Peter is dealing with an immense amount of shame at this point. And three days go by. He watches Jesus be brutally murdered on a cross. For all he knows, Jesus isn't coming back from the dead. They struggled with that. They wrestled with the reality of that, whether or not that was true. And so three days go by and Peter is dealing with this guilt and the shame of what he's went through. And in John 21.1, here's what it says. It says, After these things... Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, 
He showed himself. And it was, so it's saying after these things, after what? After Jesus dies on the cross, after Peter betrays him, after he is in the grave. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the resurrection when Jesus is raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of excitement going on because at this point, people have heard about Jesus being raised from the dead. But there's also a lot of confusion because they're not sure what he's doing because Jesus is going around messing with everybody. If you remember, the angels show up to Mary and I love it because they say, hey, Mary, Listen, he's not here at the tomb anymore because he's risen. But then the angel in Mark, verse chapter 16, verse 7, says something very specific to, to Mary. He says, but go tell his disciples, notice this, and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he said to you. Now, why do you think the angel added in there specifically, and Peter? I believe it's because the angel knew that if he didn't add Peter in there, Peter was probably not going to show up. Peter was already dealing with such guilt and shame that by the time the angel would have showed up and said, Hey, disciples, Jesus is going to meet you all over in Galilee. You need to come down by the sea and check him out. He's been raised from the dead. Mary, you tell him. If he'd have told him that, Peter would have said, No, that's for his disciples. I denied him. I don't fit in that category anymore. You know why? Because Jesus said, we all heard him say it, guys. In the, it, it was like the law. We all heard him say it. He said that if you deny me before people, then I'm going to deny you before my heavenly Father. You imagine that ringing over in his head. I'm thinking, man, I know, I know I would have felt the same way. I would have said, but Jesus said, it's Scripture. If I deny him, he's going to deny me. There's no way he's receiving me. There's no way he's talking about me. So why does the angel say, and Peter? Because he knows. He knows the situation that he's in. And so they end up going in, and Peter comes to this situation. They say, all right, boys, let's go. Let's go down to Galilee. And they get to this place, and once they get there at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, in John 21, 3, it says that Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. So they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now you would say, well, they, of course, they're just, they're just going fishing. It's the evening, you know, dudes like to fish. Some scholars would say they're just trying to have some fun and kill some time, right? Just trying to go out and fish some. Others say maybe they're trying to make a little side money. But let me tell you something. For Peter, I believe this was a career move. Okay, listen to me. I believe Peter is there waiting on Jesus. And even though the angel said, and Peter and Mary said, like probably Mary came in and said, hey, the disciples, Jesus said, they told me, you need to come, and you too, Peter. And Peter said, you're just saying that, Mary, because you like me. I'll go, but I know he doesn't really want me there. And so he shows up, and once they get there, Jesus is not there yet. You know what Peter says? He says, you know what, boys, I know Jesus is here to talk to you, but I'm just going to go fishing. And you know why he says that? Because that was his career. That was his job. For three years, Jesus had called him out of fishing, out of his day job, into ministry. And Peter is saying, no longer am I fit for ministry. I'm disqualified. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my, my career. Because here's the thing. You, you know, like if, if, I, if I tell Andrea, hey, Andrea, I'm going to go play some basketball. What she get, an image she gets in her mind is probably me over here shooting jumpers by myself, missing quite a few, hitting a few on occasion, right? She gets that in her mind. But I watched the documentary about Michael Jordan. And if you remember Michael Jordan, right, when, he, when his dad died, he took about a two-year hiatus and he went and played baseball. 
He wasn't quite as good at baseball. But when he came, came back, he could say the same thing that I said, and he said it. He shows up, does a press conference, and says, I'm playing basketball. And we didn't think he was just going to go into the gym and shoot some jumpers. We knew he was going back into the career of basketball. See, Peter's making a career choice. He's saying, no longer am I fit for ministry. I'm going back fishing I've got to do something with this. And here's what people do. I want to say this because I believe he is doing what so many people are doing. And what happens is Peter is down and he's out and he's broken. So you know what he does to sort of numb the pain? He just gets busy and goes to work. How many people do that? When you don't feel good about what's going on in your life, you just get busy and you start going to work and you get caught up in between busyness and distraction. But at least you've got so much of your time filled up that you've got no room for Jesus. You got no room to think about the Lord because you know what? You failed Him and you're not really good for ministry anyway. And so I just need to get caught up in busyness and distraction in my day job and do as much as I can because Lord knows I'm not going to find satisfaction and I'm not going to find any fulfillment in doing ministry anymore. That's no longer there for me, so I got to find it in doing something else. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now the interesting thing is, is that his disciples say, you know what? We're going too. Why? Because Peter had influence. And do you know that you got influence too? You never sin alone. You never make a decision in your life, whether, you're, whether it's your job or a bad decision or you, or you make or whatever it may be, you never make a decision that it ultimately does not influence others. You say, well, it's my life, it's my decisions. No, your decisions are going to affect the people that are watching you, the people that are around you. And see, Peter had influence, so his buddy said, you know what, we're going to go fishing with you too. And so they go out, and I love it. They said, we're going to go with you, but it says immediately they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? This is the Lord messing with them. I, I really believe that. I think this is the Lord messing with them. Messing with his kids. Because that's what the Lord does. Sometimes you do something that you want to do so bad and it doesn't work out, does it? And the Lord is messing with you. You think, Lord, I wanted to do this. Why wouldn't you cause it to work out? I'm trying to catch some fish out here, get my job started back, but yet I catch nothing. See, the Lord, not only is the Lord not going to receive me into ministry, He's not going to bless my job anymore. He hates me so bad. That's what Peter's out there thinking on the boat. They catch no fish. And sometimes in your life when things aren't going well, I want you to understand this, that if things aren't going well, it could be that God is complicating things on purpose because you're moving in the wrong direction. You're moving in the wrong direction. You've had another calling your entire life and you wonder why things are so jammed up and things aren't working out. And it could be that God in His mercy is not allowing you to catch any fish. So that you'll say, man, this ain't going to work. And God is saying, what you're doing in your life right now, it's not, it's not working very well. And John 21, 4 says, But when the morning had now come, they had fished all night, and Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, this is something, if you read the Scriptures, it really, it really messes with my mind a little bit because how is it that they spent so much time with Jesus? Three years there with Jesus, and when He's raised from the dead, nobody knows that it's Him. I mean, did He, go, did he die and get like a total makeover or something? Like, you know, He came back with like feathered hair or something pushed back, and He was shaved or something. I, I don't know. No, I don't think that's it. I think there's a mystery going on as, as to why they don't... They don't understand and, and recognize who he is, but it's over and over again nobody recognizes who he is when he's first raised. And I could say a lot of different things, but it just it strikes me just how much Jesus has a sense of humor during all this. 
If you read this, you really start to see Jesus' playfulness, his sense of humor, and how he sort of messes with people. Because you remember whenever Mary is at the tomb, and Mary's looking for Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and Jesus looks over his shoulder and says, Hey, woman, why are you weeping? He knows exactly why she's weeping. Why is he even asking her that? And then she said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm sad. Jesus has died. And she said, he said, well, whom are you seeking? He knows that she's seeking him. Why is he messing with her like that? And then it says that she, that he, that she supposes that he is actually the gardener. And I'm wondering if he's over here just with hedge clippers trimming the bushes, just letting it ride for a minute to mess with her. You know what? I'm raised from the dead. Let's see if she tells me I'm over clips and bushes. And then Mary, if you remember... She goes back to the disciples, and whenever she's in there, she starts telling them that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And as she's telling them, Jesus in his glorified body scares them to death because he doesn't even come through the front door. He just appears. (laughs) And he's in their midst. And then they're all scared to death, and the way that he scares them to death is by literally saying, peace be with you. And then they've got fish sitting there. And you know what? He's just like, hey, boys, you care if I get in on this fish? What is that? Is it catfish? I mean, what you got? And so they call it, look, biblical scholars call this internal proof. Because they say that there's no way anybody could have come up with this stuff on their own. And you see Jesus after he's raised from the dead. He goes and he talks to two of his disciples who are walking along the road to Emmaus. And for seven miles, he just pulls up alongside of them. And it says that they didn't know he was Jesus. And and he says, why are you boys sad? What's going on? He said, have you not heard about what's going on? Jesus Christ, the one we thought was Messiah, he died and he's been dead three days now and we don't know what's going on. We thought he was going to be the one. And Jesus is like, yeah, but wasn't that to fulfill Scripture? And for seven miles he preaches the Old Testament to them to verify that Jesus the Messiah was supposed to die on the cross. And then when he gets to their house after a seven-mile walk of him preaching the Bible and showing that it was supposed to happen, he acts like he ain't even going to come in. He's like, all right, boys, well, good message. We'll talk to you later. And they said, well, no, come in. They pull him in. And once they pull him in, all of a sudden he comes in, he sits down, he breaks bread with them. And in that moment, it's like, hey, dudes, it's me. I'm Jesus. And then he vanishes. <laughs> He's just messing with people. I laughed a lot harder in my mind, you know, than you guys are. <laughs> I don't know. I guess, I guess it's just that we as Christians, when we think, it's, it's also too, if you, if you watch the old shows of Jesus and stuff, and it's like, everybody is so formal and thou movest over hearest and, and all that stuff. And you get this real strange picture about how Jesus would be. And I feel like he would just be like the coolest dude ever to hang out with. And I really do believe that he had a sense of humor with his buddies after he's right. I mean, I would. You know what I'm saying? Like if I came back from the dead and my buddies all thought I was dead and I could pull up and like put a cloak over myself and y'all wouldn't know it was me, I would mess with you. And this is what he's doing. And so he comes to this point, and and he's sitting out on shore while they're out there fishing all night. And in John 21, 5, it says, Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. I imagine that's how they said it. One translation, he calls them brothers. This is more accurate translation where he calls them children. But it is, it, it's, it's a diminutive form. It's a, it's a masculine diminutive form, which literally means he kind of called out like this. Hey, little boys. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's, that's how dudes mess with their, with their buddies. Hey, little boys. You guys got any food or what? He know they didn't have any food. He's calling them out. He's messing with them a little bit. He's playful. He's having some fun after he's been raised from the dead. And he shows up. He calls them little boys. And, you know, he, he knows the answer. But they say, 
No, we ain't got no food. And so John 21, 6, and it says, And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Now here's what's amazing about this. is This is the second time that Jesus does this miracle where he tells them to cast the net on the other side of the boat. And do you remember the first time that he did it? The first time that Jesus did this miracle was not when Peter failed. It was when Peter was first called into ministry. He was out doing his day job like you and I do. And, and Jesus walks up on shore and guess what? Same thing happened. They've been all night fishing, caught nothing. And Jesus says, cast your net out on the other side of the boat. Now, I, I, I edited a movie, a, a movie clip for you, basically a show clip. If y'all have seen The Chosen, this is going to be about a three-minute clip. I want you to sit and watch this. Now, this is not when G Peter was restored. This was right whenever Peter was first called into the ministry. So I, want, I think this will help bring it to life. So let's put that, show them that clip right quick. A little farther out. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. All right. That's your word. brother and the baptizer. <laughs> you are the Lamb of God, yes? I am. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. You don't know who I am and the things I've done. Don't be afraid, Simon. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> we, we've waited for you for so long, we believe. But my faith, how sorry. <laughs> Lift up your head, fisherman. <laughs> what do you want from me? Anything you ask, I will do. Follow me. Amen. So that's a pretty good clip, isn't it? And you notice what happens as soon as this, he experiences this. This was when Jesus first calls him. When he experiences that miracle, his response is he hits his knees. He says, I'm a sinful man. He realizes that God has stepped into his boat. He stepped into his life. And he's calling him out of his daily job into something far greater than he's ever dreamed of. And Peter is at this moment, he's aware of the kind of man that he is. He probably wasn't doing the best things in the world. But he senses this call. He feels the love of Jesus. And he's drawn to him. And see, Jesus' response is, look, I've come for you. You are mine. And I have an entirely new life for you that you've never even dreamed of. And here's what I don't want you to miss, is at the point of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus is very specific about how he restores him. Because Jesus could have done a million different things. Now, if I'd have been Jesus, I would probably just took Peter out back and whipped him real good. You know what I'm saying? It's like, all right, son, you got to learn your lesson. Come out here. I'm going to whip you. And just would have whipped him real good. But Jesus decides to do something very specific. The first time he shows up to Peter after he has the angel, Ad and Peter, Peter comes on and he's out there fishing and Jesus shows up on shore. And after Peter has failed Jesus, what does he do? He recreates the miracle that he did whenever he first called him. Because he's reminding him, he's saying, Hey, Peter, I know you failed, but do you remember when I first called you? That's not changed. My calling is without repentance. I've not changed my mind about you. Did you mess up? Absolutely. You did something terrible. You did something that you should never have done. You misrepresented what it meant to be a disciple of mine. But that doesn't matter because my calling has not changed toward you. And I want you to understand that this relationship, this connection that we had in the very beginning, that thing you felt when you first heard my voice and I called you into ministry, that's still available for you. You're not disqualified, even though you feel like you're disqualified. And even though I know you heard me say that if you deny me, I'm going to deny you. you got to understand that love is greater than the law. There's something beyond that. And my relationship with you is not over yet just because of what has happened. And so John 21, 7, right after this happens, this happens once again whenever he restores him. And it says, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, if you notice, I don't know if you realize this or not, but over and over again in John, John calls himself the disciple whom, whom Jesus loved, which is pretty cool. Like, I'm going to go around saying that sometimes to you all and be like, you know that preacher that Jesus loves? I'll be like, who are you talking about? Oh, me. He always talked about himself in that way in third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he said to Peter, he didn't say to the other that others that are in the boat, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. In other words, he's trying to say, Peter, don't you understand? Don't you see it? He did this for you. We all know what you did down there. We all know. I know you're ashamed. I know you're broken. But don't you understand, Peter, what he's doing right now? He's doing this for you because he wants you to be restored. And so the question is, how does God treat you in your failure? Because what I sense when I talk to people who have failed is that God has totally rejected them, that God's angry at them, that if God were to talk to them, He'd probably yell at them. 
He'd probably be upset. You know, best case scenario, what God does when you fail is He just starts to sort of shun you and ignore you and He focuses on the other people. We would think that Jesus would show up to the other 11 disciples and focus on them and just sort of not, you know, give Peter the cold shoulder a little bit, not really focus on him. Just sort of walk around the issue because everybody knew that Peter had denied him. So let's not talk to Peter. Let's talk to the other 11 disciples and just sort of make Peter feel bad for a while. Is that not the way that most of us think God would treat people who have failed, people who have broken? Because you know what? That's the way we treat people who have failed. That's the way we treat people who, are, who have broken and messed up. That's what we do. We say, you know what? We can't really invite them back in right out of the gate. We should probably turn our shoulder to them just a little bit. Shun them just a little bit. It'll be good for them. But Jesus recreates the miracle. And Peter does something that I wish everyone would really do today. He stops slowly moving away from God and he takes a plunge. The very next verse, it says, Therefore that disciple and Peter, he said, It's the Lord. And now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and he plunged into the sea. Now who, one, who puts clothes on to jump in the water? I mean, like, like I take them, you know, I'm going to try to swim through this thing. I'm going to probably take my shirt off or something and try to get a little bit more aerodynamic through the water, at least get my boots off, you know what I'm saying? I got to get there quick. But he puts clothes on, and he doesn't even do like a nice nine or ten point dive. He just plunges into the sea. And here's the thing. it gets me- When you move back toward God after you've messed up, you got to understand that it can be very messy. Most people don't know how to start. They don't know how to begin. They don't know the prayer to pray. And it doesn't matter how messy it is. It's just the fact that you take the plunge. And Peter takes the plunge and he starts moving toward Jesus. And and it says in verse 8, But the other disciples came. I love what John is all time like messing with Peter, especially when he writes. He said, But the other disciples, they came in the little boat. For they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, which is 100 yards, dragging the net with the fish. So, so John's like, you know what? Peter jumped and he plunged into the sea, but we stayed in the boat because we wasn't but 100 yards. You're like, boys, just let Peter do it. You know how he is. Just let him swim on up. And he's messing with him. But they, just, they, they come on up to sea. In John 21, verse 9, it says, Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there. I want you to pay very close attention to that. They came to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Now Jesus already had the fish there. Jesus was the one that enabled them to catch the fish, wasn't he? When you're doing things on your own effort, I promise you, a lot of times you're going to find that you're not getting much done. But when you allow Jesus to give you the command, and you in obedience do what he says, you start finding yourself being more efficient than you've ever been in your life. And when you talk about law and love or you talk about law and grace, John bears this reality out because it wasn't never about what Peter could bring to Jesus. Peter was all about what he could bring to Jesus. I'll do this, Lord. I'll do that. And Jesus is saying, I know you just caught a bunch of fish and really you caught it at my power, but right now I'm telling you I've already got the fish prepared. It's not about what you can bring me. It's always about what I bring you. This is the difference between law and love or law and grace. And John bears this out in Scripture. Now, it's very interesting, Peter and John, their names, and you see them together in Scripture all the time. I want you to put this, put this next slide up. See, Peter's name is a name. His name was Simon, right? Jesus gives him the name Petros, which literally means stone. 
Stone represents the law because the law was written with the finger of God in stone on Ten Commandments. And it represents, so Peter represents self-effort. He represents trying hard. He represents trying hard to love God. So it's, for Peter, it's not about what Jesus does for him. For Peter, it's about what he does for Jesus. Amen. And he tries so hard. He said, I lay down my life for your sake, Lord. This is, this is him out of this mindset of law and having to provide for Jesus where he gets in this place. But John's name, Yahanin, right? It literally means Yahweh is grace or Yahweh is gracious. So he's putting the grace of God and the love of God over against the law of God, the stone of God. So many people function out of law rather than out of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. They really do. And so what that means is it means that he's great, gracious and it says that his name means empowered by receiving God's love. Now, if you notice, this is why in the book of John, what you see Peter doing is he's saying, Lord, I'll, I'll never deny you. I'll lay down my life for your sake. But what you see John doing is the total opposite. He never talks about what he's going to do. Matter of fact, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loves because he's not aware of his ability to love Jesus. He's aware of how much Jesus loves him. And then when he's sitting at the table, what you see is Peter senses a distance because Peter will ask John... Why don't you ask Jesus who it is that's going to betray him? Where was John that night at the supper? John was laying right there on the bosom of Jesus. He sensed a nearness to Jesus. So when everything hit the fan, what happened? Peter, who had said, I'll make it, I'll lay down my life, denies Jesus three times. But John, the one who said nothing but simply rested on Jesus' love, was at the cross, the only disciple at the cross when Jesus died. This is why you got to learn out of functioning, not on how well you can love God, but how well God loves you. Because when you live in the awareness of God's love for you, you naturally begin to love God back. You naturally begin to love others, and you live in that lifestyle. But when you try so hard to be better and try so hard to do better and make all these big boastful claims and all these grandeur things, but you forget to rest in the love of God, and when you worship, receive that love of God, you have no strength or power to do anything. And that's the difference between this law and this love, this grace and this love. But see, Peter has missed it. And the question, like I said at the beginning, is what does God do to you when you're a failure? Does He whip them? Does He yell at them? Does He shout condemnation? No, He's gentle, He's playful, and He cooks them breakfast. Why do you think Jesus cooked them breakfast? Because that's what friends do for friends, don't they? They say, you know what, I want to eat some breakfast with you, man. Why don't you come over? Let's, I'll cook you some breakfast. You come over, we'll hang out. And he deals with this. And in the midst of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus recreates the moment of connection. And here's what he's saying to Peter. He says, your failure does not cancel your destiny. And I need some of you to understand that this morning. That your failure, wherever you've messed up, and maybe if you say, well, I'm not a failure. I'm, I'm tough. I'm like Peter. I can do anything, and I have been doing everything, and it's really working out great for me. But I'm telling you that you may come across somebody that's living in failure, and you need to tell them, that their failure does not cancel their destiny. That their failure is never final. And this is so important because he brings him to a charcoal fire. And this is a very specific word in the Greek language because get this, charcoal fire in the New Testament shows up twice. The other time that it showed up was here. It showed up when Jesus is restoring Peter. The other time that it showed up is when Peter is in the courtyard warming himself by a charcoal fire whenever he looks over and sees Jesus right after he had denied him three times. What is Jesus doing? He's recreating the miracle where he was called, but now he's recreating the situation where he failed him and denied him three times. Why is he doing this? 
Now, we got to unpack this because this is one of the most important things in the true ministry of inner healing and restoration. Some people are so messed up from something that's happened to them in the past, and they're so afraid to relive that moment. And here's the thing. Jesus is about to save Peter's life because if Jesus does not do what he's about to do, every time Peter hears a rooster crow, he's reminded of his shame. It drives him further away from God. Every time Peter thinks about Jesus, he just remembers when he failed him. But Jesus is taking him back to try to restore him. And in John 21, 15, he says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, he speaks very specifically. And I've, used, I've shown some of you this before, but maybe you've not seen it. But it's so interesting because in this, in this line of Scripture, there are two words for love that are used. One is agape, and agape is self-sacrificial Self-giving love. Agape love is the love that Jesus has for you that when you were in your sins, he said, I want to die for that person. And he laid down your life for you. And, and Jesus asked Peter, he said, hey, hey, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me like you said you did, like you're willing to lay down your life for me? And he says, are you willing to do it more than these? Do you love me more than these? And here's the thing. Some people say, well, he was, he was talking about more than these. He was talking about the disciples. He's saying, do you actually love me more than the rest of these disciples? And then some people were saying that Jesus was holding the fish and saying, do you love me more than these? He's saying, do you not realize that your calling is greater than your day job? Are you willing to turn down everything that I've offered you for a good paying job? Is that what you want? So do you love me more than the, the disciples do or do you love me more than these fish? Either way, I think it works. Maybe he was doing both. But here he comes into this position and in verse 15, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you. He uses a different word. He's basically saying, Lord, you know I don't love you with that self-sacrificial love that you're talking for. I just have a friendly affection for you. And you know that about me. You've experienced that now. So in a way, he's confessing. In a way, he's confessing the reality that his love is not as great as he thought it was, that Jesus' love is greater. He said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? Now, now Jesus comes down to his level. He no longer uses agape. He uses this friendly affection. And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me with just this affection? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I only have that friendly affection for you. It's not that self-sacrificial love that, we, that I spoke of. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And Jesus switches the word on this third time. And here's the thing that I, gotta, I ask myself when I'm reading this. I wonder, I'm like, is Jesus being mean here? Is he being mean? Because if you read it, it's like, it's like here's, here's what I imagine sometimes. I imagine Peter comes in and Jesus is being, he's just rubbing salt in the wound. He's like, you deny me three times? All right, big doll. I'm going to make you say you love me three times. And he's like, do you love me? He's like, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus is like, well, it didn't look like you loved me the other night when you denied me. Let's run it back one more time, Peter. That's what I would imagine. But no, what he's doing is he's trying to save Peter's life right here. Because I want you to understand that some of your greatest inner healing is going to come when you vocalize your greatest failure. 
and you bring it to Jesus and you understand that, when, listen, when you've been broken, when you've experienced tragedy, when you've experienced heartache, Jesus is going to revisit those things in your life. And sometimes you're going to say, but I don't want to revisit that. But Jesus is saying, we cannot move forward until we deal with this. Your calling is not changed. What I want for your life is not changed. But until we deal with the failure, until we deal with the issue, you cannot be restored. You're going to get stuck in your past and not be willing to move toward the future. But see, Jesus is not about bringing up his past for the sake of shaming him because every time he points him to the future when he says Lord you know that I love you he says good feed my sheep and he's pointing out something and I need you to understand this he calls us all sheep doesn't he now I don't know if you realize this but sheep man they are they are nature's victim like sheep got no power they can't even bite hard like they got no birds will kill a sheep you know what I'm talking about? Bird, sheep are weak. They're ineffective. They need somebody to take care of them at all times. I mean, they are, they'll be sitting there dehydrated, about to die, sitting right next to a pool of water just going, man. <laughs> they need somebody to help them. And Jesus is saying, look, man, Peter, you got to understand. What I did on the cross, I did for everybody. And this entire situation, this world is filled with sheep who don't have the ability to tend to themselves. They need to be taken care of. They need to be helped. But if you stay a victim in the failure of your past, you're never going to be able to take care of people who need it. And some of you, you're stuck in your past. You're stuck in your failure. You're stuck in this position. And Jesus is saying, look, there's sheep that need to be tended to. And you've got to move past your pain. You've got to move past your failure. You've got to move past your hurt. See, he wants to do the same exact thing with you that he did with Peter. And he's saying, Peter, your, your, your failure is not going to determine your future. I need you to get up. I need you to move forward in this situation. You know, I was uh, reading an excerpt out of an autobiography of Johnny Cash, actually. Didn't read the whole book, but I read an excerpt. And Talked about like when he would he had wasted his entire life essentially on drugs. He'd gotten so addicted that he had cut off his family, his friends. He wrecked like 35 cars or something like that. And his, his career was plummeting. He was in such terrible shape and all these things were going on. He lost everything essentially. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to take a flashlight and I'm going to go into a cave. And I'm going to walk into the depths of that cave until this flashlight burns out. And when it burns out, I'm going to curl up and that'll be the end of Johnny Cash. So he does it. He gets a flashlight. He goes in the cave. And he goes in there. And once he gets to the end of this tunnel, his flashlight goes out. And he kneels down. And he curls up in a ball. And he said, but the strangest thing happened in that moment when I was in my greatest darkness of my greatest failure. I couldn't see anything. As I curled up in there, he said, all of a sudden, God drew closer to me than he had ever drawn to me in my life. And he said, no, you've got to get up. I still want you. And so he felt the voice of God so strongly, he got up, and he didn't have his flashlight working anymore. So he starts looking for light, and after a while of walking around, he finds some light, and he comes out of the, out of the cave. And two of his friends are actually outside of the cave waiting on him. He didn't know how he got there, but he went and got sober, went to a hospital, sobered up, and launched into a new phase of his career where he got glorified God. He went on crusades with Billy Graham. And at the end of his life, they did a video of him on MTV talking about the judgment of God for sin, but the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when, you, when people are at their greatest darkness, that's when Jesus will most likely invade the most sometimes. And you need to understand that that's where he's at. And here's what it says in John 21, 18. I'm finishing up. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, 
You girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you did not wish. And then he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So literally 50 days after Peter denies Jesus three times, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And guess who preaches the gospel and 3,000 people are saved? Peter, the same man that denied Jesus three times. Now, if it had been me and you, we'd have put him on one-year probation. And said, Peter, you denied Jesus three times. We'll get you back in the swing of things in about a year. But then even then, you're going to start in children's ministry. We might let you play drums. I don't know. Playing drums is a sanctified holy thing, Peter. You denied Jesus. But 50 days later, he's preaching the gospel after the greatest failure of his life because Jesus was willing to restore him. And I love this, and here's where I'm finishing. But Peter, the same man that denied Jesus, years later in his life, he comes to Rome and he's preaching the gospel, and the emperor says, we got to kill that man. And they bring Peter and his family in, and as he's going in line to be crucified, he stops and he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. He said, I want you to crucify me upside down. And they crucified Peter upside down in Rome. And his death glorified the Lord. They said that many of them, as they went to their death that day, they were singing songs to the Lord as they died and as they were crucified on crosses. And his death glorified God. Here's what I want to say to you is you've got to be like Peter. You cannot allow your failure to define your future. You've got to let your faith define your future. Peter could have got stuck right there in that fact that he denied him. But Jesus wants to restore people. He wants to restore you. Your ministry's not over. Your calling's not over. You've got to get back in the ball game. You can't just get busy and work and doing this and doing that and trying to ignore the fact that, man, God's got calling me to move forward. I've got to seek the Lord. Yeah, I've messed up, but my life is not over. There are still some things to do. And Jesus looks down at Peter and he says, look, I need you to follow me. Just like I called you in the beginning, I'm calling you now. Your failure is not final. Jesus wants to restore you. Amen. I want you to bow your heads where you're at. Lord, we just, we just thank you for your word. And God, I know that there are people here, maybe they don't know you at all. Maybe that today is a day like when Jesus first called Peter. When they're just busy about their work, their daily lives, doing whatever it is that that they feel like they need to do. And then all of a sudden you step into their boat, Jesus, and you say, you know what, I want you to follow me. And for some of them, Lord, I pray that you would help them to sense that calling this morning. Matter of fact, if, if you're here this morning and you sense that, you say, you know what, I feel that and I, I want to follow Jesus. I want to make that step. Would you just raise your hand just to signify it right here, just as an act of faith. Just lift your hand and say, I want to follow Jesus. I feel him calling me. I see one hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? see another and I want to pray for you guys and then for the rest of us maybe you feel like you know what there's something that did happen in my life and it may have been your failure it may have been a sin that you committed it could have been uh, a divorce it could have been anything in your life that happened it could have been pain that somebody did to you nothing you did at all but somehow or another that's crept into your life and you've disqualified yourself and now the Lord's calling you. I want to pray for you as well. If you feel like it's you, won't you just as an act of faith, won't you just raise your hand? Just say, that's me. It's speaking to me. I see some hands. 
Anybody else? So, Lord, we come to you right now, and first thing, Lord God, we confess our sins. And, Lord, I pray you'd bring us back to that moment just like you did Peter, and we'd be willing to deal with that pain. We'd be willing to deal with the struggles that we're having. And, Lord, we pray that right now in this moment you would bring healing to every heart, Lord Jesus. You'd bring restoration. And, Lord God, we know that in, in, with you there is forgiveness of sins. And, Lord, there is that restoration that you offered. So we receive that right now in Jesus' name. And, Holy Spirit, we just ask you to move in our hearts and in our lives. And it's in your name that we ask it.